This week I've been just thinking about how grateful I am as I look across this room that we're a church that's a home for people of all generations. I think one of the strengths of Cornerstone Church is that we're a multi-generational church. Growing up, I, I grew up in a church in a city far from my family. We, my grandparents were like 10 and 20 hours away. And so the people in my church who were much older became literally my family. They became my grandpas and my grandmas and my aunts and my uncles because I didn't have that family around me. And today I love the fact that our staff and our elders and our volunteers that you've been served by today come from a diversity of ages and generations. And I think that's a strength of this community. As I was thinking about this this week, as I was wrapping up this sermon, I was reminded of a man who had a major impact on me. This is a picture of him. His name is Henry Gibson. Henry passed away about a year and a half ago. And uh, this is a picture with me and my brother. My brother is kind of the Josh in our family. You know, he grows the really long beard. Um, obviously, you can tell that's a challenge for me. And, and Henry was just a huge encourager to our family. He just was, he just was that kind of guy that you, you hung out with him and you left a little bit lighter and a little bit taller from spending time with him. He pastored churches for years across California. And when he retired, he moved to Las Vegas. And and he was convinced by the same idea I am today, that if you're not dead, God's not done using you. And so in our, it's it's a pretty good point, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Glad you appreciated it. Um, But Henry was just convinced that God could still use him. And so whether it was the Bible studies that he and his wife led, whether it was the people they drove to the doctor, whether it was the people that they brought meals to when they were sick, whether it was the way that he would walk out the room every Sunday morning and notice people and go, hey, your, your daughter is, is struggling right now. How's her marriage? And hey, your husband's not here today. Is he feeling well? He just, he noticed people and he encouraged them. And he continued to do that until he got to the place where he was immobile and couldn't get out of his house. And this week, as we were celebrating the birthday and the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I was reminded of one of my favorite Dr. King quotes. Dr. King said, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. And this quote sums up my friend Henry Gibson. That he wasn't, he wasn't convinced that the greatness that our world gives us, that's ego and success and power and prestige and position and financial gain, that that's where greatness lies. He was convinced that greatness in the economy of God is serving other people. And everyone can be great because everyone can serve. And so this morning, we're continuing the series called Welcome Home. We've been in this series for the last few weeks talking about the kind of place we want to create, the kind of people we want to be, the home we want to create for other people in 2017. And the first week we talked about the fact that we want to create a place where people are welcomed home. That that church, if you haven't missed it, is not necessarily the most exciting place to be in our culture. That a lot of people have church wounds. They've got hangups. They they don't necessarily want to come here because they don't feel like they're going to be welcomed. And we want to create a place where they're welcomed with love and grace and mercy. Last week, we talked about the fact that we want to invite people into spaces where they can be surrounded by authentic community. And you heard John just now talk about his community group and say that it's been a, a, a transforming agent in his life and his family's life, but also around the world that, that that's been a place of impact. And so if you haven't joined one of those groups, we'd encourage you to today. But today we're going to talk about what does it mean for us to serve. And I'm going to just kind of spoil the ending for you. We're going to get done a little bit early today. I'm going to dismiss you right from the sermon to go out in the lobby. And we've got 10 or 12 tables out there that are hosted by leaders in our church who are leading ministries, even some from our community who are making a difference. And today the next step from the sermon is going out and getting involved 
to use the gifts and talents God has given you to make a difference. And so today's big idea is this. We want to be people who serve others sacrificially. Our heart as a church, our heart as followers of Jesus, our heart as people who take this book seriously is that we want to be people who serve others. And not just when we're comfortable, not just when it's convenient, not just when we feel like it, but we want to serve others sacrificially. And this morning, we're going to be in a text in the scripture. It's the book of Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans chapter 12. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we're talking about three quarters of the way through the Bible. There's a letter that that the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, hence the name Romans. And it's a very long and dense and complex book. It's probably um, one of Paul's greatest writings. And in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, we see a picture of what it means to serve others sacrificially. We see why we do that. We see how we do that. And we see the difference that can be made when we do that. And so this morning, as we go through this text, I have four principles for you for sacrificial servants. And when you walked in, you got a bulletin. And in that bulletin is one of these handouts. I'd encourage you to pull it out and take some notes this morning. So we'll begin in verse 1 today. This is what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The first principle for sacrificial servants is we are motivated for, by gratitude for God's mercy. What motivates us is gratitude for God's mercy. Now, if you're here at church for the first time or the first time in a long time or you're watching online, that concept of God's mercy may seem like a foreign one to you. But the reason we're all here is not that we had nothing better to do on Sunday morning or that we were done sledding after yesterday. The reason that we're here is that we've been impacted and transformed by the mercy of God. We were going our own way and doing our own thing and reaping the consequence of living life according to the best way we saw fit. And then we encountered the good news that even while we were going our own way, Jesus came for us. You know, here's the thing. You've got a lot of friends in your life and you'd probably give your life for one of those friends. You'd give some of your money. You'd give some of your time. You might even give like a kidney if they were struggling with a kidney disease because they're your friend and you love them and they're in your life. But if somebody had said, you know, well, forget you, take a flying leap. And and that's not the kind of person you give your life for, you know, you're not even going to give them five bucks, much less your life. And yet that's what Jesus did for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still doing our own thing, he gave his life for us. And that mercy and that grace and that love for us, we haven't lost sight of it. And it motivates us every single day to serve others. And so at the beginning of this passage, Paul says, I urge you in view of God's mercy. I appeal to you in view of God's mercy. He says, that's why we're motivated. Now, if you've ever been in church before, you know a lot of other motivations. Because a lot of times in church, pastors and church leaders use what I call GFO. They use guilt, fear, and obligation. I'm assuming you're laughing because you've experienced this before. But these are very powerful motivators. And not just in church, but with small children, you know? If you're trying your kids to do something, guilt, fear, and obligation are very powerful motivators. But they're incredibly dangerous. 
And one of the reasons they're dangerous is because they work. And each time you use them, though, they work a little bit less and they have more negative consequences. You can motivate people with these things, but the longer you go, the messier it gets. And sometimes when these things are motivators, either we use them ourselves or other people use them, they start wearing off. And so we double down and we forget these and we go to shame. We motivate ourselves and others through shame. See, guilt says you should feel bad for all you've done. And so you should do this as a way to kind of earn it back. Fear says you should motivate this because you're afraid of God. I mean, he could smite you. You know, you, you should do this. Some people say that obligation, you know, you're obligated, you know, for whatever reason, socially or spiritually, you should do this. But shame says that there is something wrong with you, that you are not worthy, that you are not enough, and you need to do the right thing so that you can make yourself worthy so that you can make yourself enough. And if guilt, fear, and obligation are dangerous, shame is deadly. And many of us wrestle with shame. We feel like that the things that we've done or the things that are true about us leave us unworthy of God, leave us unworthy of his love, leave us unworthy of his mercy. And so many of us do really good things. You may go around the world, you, you may serve somebody in your community. You may set aside your own agenda, but it's not because you believe it's the right thing to do. It's because you believe that you, there is something deeply wrong with you and only when you do that will you earn God's love. And Paul says at the beginning, he doesn't say, I appeal to you out of shame. I appeal to you out of guilt. He says, I appeal to you out of the mercy of God and your gratitude for that. So let's be clear today. If you're going to get involved in serving, don't get involved for shame or guilt or fear or obligation. Those fears will not last. Only gratitude will. T.S. Eliot once said, the greatest temptation is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And I don't want you to do the right thing today for the wrong reason. Paul continues. He says, I call you in, in view of God's mercy to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. The old sacrificial system was that you gave animals as sacrifices once a year. We celebrated this morning that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. There's not a need for any more to satisfy the, the condition of our sin. We've been freed from that. No, but Paul says, instead of sacrificing an animal, sacrifice yourself as a living sacrifice, put yourself out there and put your own agenda and your own ego and your own things aside. Become a living sacrifice. It's been said by many that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it's off the altar. You can go, I'm going to sacrifice myself, but guess what? You're going to have to do that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And that decision is never going to get easier. That's why as a community, we need what happens in here when it comes to corporate worship. But if you just spend time here and you don't spend time every day, you're going to struggle to be a living sacrifice because Sunday's not enough. You're here for an hour. You're not here for 167 hours. Which one will win? Just do the math. And that's why worship is not defined by the songs we sing on Sunday but by the sacrifices we make on Monday. People come and go, I, I love the worship at Cornerstone. No, what you mean is you love the singing at Cornerstone. 
Singing is not the totality of worship. Paul says here, this is your spiritual worship. Not the songs you sing, but the sacrifices you make. Because many of us sing songs we're not prepared to live. We sing words that are going to be a challenge for us on Tuesday. And so Paul is saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not because you're obligated, but because you're grateful for all that God has done for you and you haven't forgotten it. The second principle for sacrificial servants comes from verse 2. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The second principle is that we reject conformity and pursue transformation. Paul is saying here that that the world has a mold. It's trying to fit us in. And you know this. You have one at work. This is what it means to have this job. This is what it means to be in this field. This is what it means to live at this status. This is what it means to be in this family. This is what it means to be a mom of a child at this school. This is what it means to live in this neighborhood. And we think that this is a new problem. Paul is saying, no, this is a 2,000-year-old problem. This is a human problem that we're tempted to be conformed to a mold. And so Paul says, don't be conformed, stand out. Don't fit in. Be the person God has created you to be. And social media just makes this really, really tempting. We see every day a picture of who we think we should be, and we try to conform ourselves to that mold. And then we resent it. It's a really dangerous cocktail. But Paul says, don't be conformed. He says, actually, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? What what Paul means is that if you're going to be the person who can be a living sacrifice, it's going to take constant attention. It's going to take constant effort. You can't just have a Sunday faith. You have to have a daily faith. If you only talk to God on Sunday or only spend time on your relationship with God from 9 to 10 while you're here, your mind is not going to be renewed. I'll use an example from my life. My, life, my wife and I went on a date last night. We try to do this every week. Um, we went out for, I think, two, two and a half hours. But if that two or two and a half hours out of a 168-hour week is the only time we talk about or work on our relationship, our marriage is not going to get any better. You know, if you take an hour and you go to the gym on Monday morning and you're healthy for that hour and then you eat whatever you want and do whatever you want until that same hour the next Monday, nothing's going to change. You may feel good for that hour and go, why am I gaining weight, you know? Um, But you're not going to change. See, renewing our mind is a continual daily thing and no one else can do it for you. I can teach you biblical truth. I can give you really... um, clever or memorable statements, but I can't renew your mind for you on Wednesday morning. I can't renew your mind when you're tempted to be conformed to the mold of your profession or your family or your friends. You have to do that. It's a job you cannot delegate to anybody else. If you don't do it for yourself, it won't get done. And that's why Paul says you have to renew your mind on a daily basis if you're going to be transformed. 
Why? So you can test and approve what God's will is. The two biggest questions I get as a pastor are how do you hear from God and how do you know God's will? Two biggest questions that I think people wrestle with. How do you hear God talk to you so you know he's real and how do you know what you're supposed to do? Well, you're not going to know what God's will is if you never actually spend time and create space to listen. Many of us spend all of our time engaged with the world. We don't ever be quiet before God. And I have to tell you, God whispers far more than he shouts. And a lot of us exchange shouts from the world for whispers from God. Because we don't create any time and space in our lives because we never stop. And if you want to be able to know what God's will is, you're going to have to renew your mind. And if you feel like you're kind of stuck in your relationship with God, it may be because you've spent all your time under the power of conformity instead of pursuing transformation. That's why since I've been here, I've called you to do all sorts of crazy things. The first month I was here, we, we prayed at the same time of day every day. This fall, we memorized a scripture verse every week. Last week, we called you to get plugged into a community group where you can apply what we talked about on Sundays. And today, we're challenging you to intentionally serve others. Because this is great, but this isn't everything. And you have to take the next step if you're going to reject conformity and pursue transformation. Paul continues in verse 3. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The third principle for sacrificial servants is that we choose humility over ego. We choose humility over ego. Now, again, this is not a popular message in our culture because everything in our culture celebrates ego, not humility. We celebrate people who think they're a lot and know they're a lot and show us they're a lot as opposed to people who go a different kind of path. And even in church, this is a temptation because when you walk into church, because you do this everywhere you go, from Walmart to Target to Starbucks to church, you walk in as a consumer. And when you go home today, the, the temptation you're going to face is to judge this based upon, how was that for me? Did that music work for me? Was it the music I liked? Was that the songs that I liked? Did I, did I get anything out of the sermon? I mean, this environment, because of the culture we live in, can become incredibly transactional. You come to get a service and then you leave. I mean, we even call this a worship service. And some of us view this that way. You know, my, my espresso was a little bit burned in my Starbucks. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to go back there, you know. That sermon didn't really work for me. I, I kind of lost him for like 20 minutes in the middle of there. That didn't really work for me. And here's the thing. When it comes to this community, this community can and should be for you, but it can never be about you. I hope you come and experience God's presence here. I hope you come and you have people who know your name and miss you when you're gone and are engaged in your life. But this place is not about meeting your needs. The number one goal for me is not that you walk out and feel good because if worship is about us, we've missed it. Worship is not about how we feel. It's about how God feels. This is not about what we get out of it. Out of it. It's what we give 
And the temptation for churches like us is to exist for ourselves, to look for our own needs to get met. I'm not sure who first said it, but a community that exists exclusively for itself is in danger of dying. And across the American landscape, there are 80 to 85% of churches that are either plateaued or declined. 10 to 15% are growing. And the core problem is this, because the communities exist for themselves. We're fueling ego, not humility. We're, we're fueling self-indulgence. And Paul says, be careful that you don't make it about you. Instead, serve others. Don't think more highly than you want to think of yourselves, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. The most common line that pastors get when people leave their churches is four words. I'm not getting fed. I've talked to all my friends. We kind of compare notes from time to time. And I get it. If you're coming to church on a weekly basis and you're not connecting with people and and you're not experiencing God, it's a tough spot to be in. But this is not like going to Starbucks. This is not consumerism here where you show up and we give you a service. This is us together as a community worshiping and following God and seeking him together. Because here's the crazy thing. If you go this route, this I'm not getting fed route, when we make it about ourselves, other people's needs don't get met and we rarely grow. Think about the people in your life that are the most egotistical. I know this is gonna be really hard for you. Do you notice change in them? Like, are they changing? Are they growing? Or are they kind of the same person they've always been? They're frustrating in the exact same ways. See, fueling ego does not lead to growth. And when you look out for your own needs, you don't grow and the people around you, their needs never get met. That's the problem with self-indulgence. It doesn't work for anybody. But here's the thing. When we make it about other people's needs, and we serve them, they get their needs met, and we grow. This is how God's economy works. When you set your ego aside, you think of yourself with humility, and you say, I'm going to serve other people instead of getting my needs met. You know what happens in the end? You get your needs met. But if you put your needs first, and it's all about you, they don't get their needs met, and you stay stuck. Some of you are stuck And it's because you need to get over yourself and start serving others. And then you'll start growing again. There comes a certain point in your spiritual life where you have to start using all the things you've learned. Your your bookshelf could be covered in classes and books you've read. But until you take those books off the shelf and start investing those lessons in other people, that education does you no good. And so we have to set aside our own egos. This happened to me. I'll just share a little story. I got a couple minutes. In 2015, I got stuck. I stopped spending time with God on a daily basis. I stopped renewing my mind and I got frustrated. What's going on? Like, why am I not growing anymore? And so what happened is in the course of a couple months, a friend of mine, we started talking together and praying together every day. And we committed that we were going to pray for one another every single day. And so I talked to him every single day. And you know what that that did? I had to start 
figuring out things that I could do when he was struggling to help him because he's my friend. And I knew what was going on in his life at a really personal level. I started serving him and, and he'd share a need. And I'd, I'd pray for him throughout the day and go, hey, you know, I, I've got a book on that that would help him. Or I heard a sermon about that. Or I wrote a quote and I started sending him that stuff. And it started, you know, what started making me excited to read and learn and grow again. I met another guy who was in a really tough place. And so I said, I will send you a text message every single day with a scripture or a prayer or a quote, something to be encouraging. And so for almost 11 months now, I've been doing that every single day. You know what that did? It made me go find stuff to share with him every single day. I would have never done that for myself. I would have have been lazy, to be honest. I would have been lazy. But because somebody was expecting me to actually pray for them and care for them, because somebody was expecting me to encourage them, serving other people meant he got prayed for and he got encouraged and I started being excited to learn and grow again. There are many of you that have been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive. And you may be in a season in your life where your work life has changed, but just because you retired from your job does not mean you get to retire from the kingdom of God. And there's this idea within American Christianity that it's about us being served. And the example from my friend Henry is that you never get done serving. And when you grow the most is when you give yourself away. So let's finish in verses four through eight. Paul says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individual members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our teaching, sorry, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The last principle is we use our gifts to serve others, not ourselves. The gifts that God gives us are to serve others with not ourselves. Paul uses this image of a human body. He says the body has many parts. It's got many bones and muscles and appendages and organs and systems. And those do not exist for themselves. They exist for the good of the body. And when one body part begins to exist for itself, we call that sickness or illness or cancer. And in the same way in our body here, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to serve others. God gave us these gifts not to serve ourselves. They're always good for the body. And I think that there's been some misconceptions about spiritual gifts over the years. If, if you say, hey, I don't know what my gifts are, just Google spiritual gift assessment and take two or three. But here's the thing. Um, I believe that when you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He comes to take residence in you and he gives you gifts you didn't have before. That's why a talent that you were born with is not a spiritual gift. They're different. But there's this kind of um, culture within the church that treats each gift differently. Like if you have certain gifts, like I have the gift of teaching, 
it makes you better than other people in certain circles. We kind of spotlight those gifts. And, and here's what you have to know. Your gift doesn't make you special. It makes you a steward. Your gift doesn't make you special. It makes you a steward. That word steward is a word you see kind of all over the Bible. And it's this idea that it doesn't belong to you. If you're a steward of something, it belongs to somebody else and you've been given it temporarily to take care of it and use it. And one day you'll be held accountable for how you did that. That's why we talk about our, our money in terms of stewardship. The money you have came from God. It's not yours. He's going to hold you accountable for how you use it. And it matters what you do. And that isn't to say that you're not special because I think you are. I think the three things that make you tremendously special are creation, the cross, and the empty tomb. I mean, just so you know, you are the crowning work of God's creation. I was driving in this morning from Chino Valley, where I live, and Prescott is beautiful today, but it has nothing on you. In the creation account, God says that you trump everything he's made. You trump the Grand Canyon. You trump the Great Barrier Reef. You trump everything. He says you were made in his image. You are his masterpiece. The cross says you're special. Most of us would never give our life for somebody who declared that they hated us, they wanted nothing to do with us, and we were going to do our own thing. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't say abracadabra, you're forgiven. He suffered and died. And the empty tomb says that he is more powerful than anything happened in your life. And in the scriptures, it says that same power resides within you. You're more powerful than you realize. Not in an egotistical way, but in a humble way, because the, the power of the resurrection lies within you. And that means that you've been entrusted with gifts and talents and abilities to do God's work here. One of my favorite scriptures is Colossians 1.27. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glorious mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think about that. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I know some of you have self-image issues. You have insecurity issues. If you have a relationship with Jesus, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The next day you're feeling down or you don't feel like you measure up compared to somebody else, say, you know what? Christ in me, the hope of glory. And that's why I think we need to take a step forward today and shift from saying, see what we can do for God to see what God can do through us. We often go, hey, I'm gonna go do this great thing for God in your own power, in your own strength. Instead of saying, you know what? God is capable of more than I could ever imagine. See what God can do through me. Some of you go, I, I can't serve. I, I can't do that. I don't have any skills. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God can do through you. And don't, don't second um, guess don't set aside, don't, don't limit our God and what he can do through you. If he can forgive your sins, he can use your gifts. If he can come for you when you weren't even looking for him, 
then he can use you today. I've got one last little thing for us to do together. Would everybody in the room raise their hand? Okay, hold it up. Now raise it higher. Can I put it down? How did I know you could raise your hand higher? Every one of you just raised your hand higher. How did I know that? Because you are capable of more than you initially give. I don't know why it is. I don't know if it's because you're afraid somebody's going to ask more. I don't know if it's because you're just kind of doing it because everybody else is doing it. I don't know if it's because some of you have heard this illustration before. But I believe many of us are already doing things we believe are good. We're already serving. And the question isn't, are you serving? The question is, where is God calling you to stretch? Because there comes a point in your life where you have to stop playing it safe and just doing the things you can do from memory. Some of you, you're serving, but it's really safe. You could just do it by memory. It doesn't require God. It just requires you. And this year, my challenge for you is if you're going to be a living sacrifice, it's going to require stretch. Because you don't grow in your comfort zone. You grow in your discomfort zone. You don't change where you're comfortable. No, you change when God makes you uncomfortable. And so my big question is, where's God calling you to stretch this year? Where is he calling you to get uncomfortable? Where is he calling you to step out? I love this quote from Brian Houston, and we'll close. Brian Houston said, the church isn't built on the gifts of a few, but on the sacrifices of the many. We only grow when we stretch, and stretch is sacrifice. And that's where I believe God wants to move through us this year. God, thank you so much for this passage and this word today. God, it, it messed me up before I shared it today. And there's places where I know in my life that, that you're stretching me and I've been fighting you. But God, I won't be the man and the husband and the father and the pastor that you want me to be until I stretch, until I stop being dependent on myself and begin depending on you. I pray that you would show us all the places where you want us to stretch this year and that you grow us and transform us. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand up with me? We end from time to time with a blessing, and so I want to end today with a blessing for you. We, we end with this posture of receiving, and so if you put your hands together like this, and then kind of put your hand in a ball, and then we'll kind of go one, two, three together. One, two, three. May you today realize the love and grace and mercy you've been given from God. May you not wait for Thanksgiving to find gratitude again. May that gratitude overwhelm in you so that you begin to give yourself away. And as God makes you uncomfortable this year, may you not resist it, but lean into it. And may God use you to make a difference in this world. Put it right here. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.